0: Welcome to this UbuLa audio presentation of Out of the Eons, by H.P. Lovecraft,
1: Volume 2. Chapter 4 What I read in the black book formed a fiendishly apt preparation for the news items and closer events which began to force themselves upon me in the spring of 1932. I can scarcely recall just when the increasingly frequent reports of police action against the odd and fantastical religious cults in the Orient and elsewhere commenced to impress me. But by May or June I realized that there was, all over the world, a surprising and unwanted burst of activity on the part of bizarre, furtive and esoteric mystical organizations ordinarily quiescent and seldom heard from. Not likely that I would have connected these reports with either the hints of Van Junst or the popular furore over the mummy in the cylinder of the museum, but for certain significant syllables and persistent resemblances, sensationally dwelt upon by the press, in the rites and speeches of the various secret celebrants brought to public attention. As it was, I could not help remarking with disquiet, the frequent recurrence of a name, in various corrupt forms, that seemed to constitute a focal point of all the cult worship, and which was obviously regarded with a singular mixture of reverence and chair. Some of the forms quoted were Gatanta, Tanota, Thanta, Gatan, and Katanta and it did not require the suggestions of my now numerous occultist correspondents to make me see in these variants a hideous and suggestive kinship to the monstrous name rendered by von Junst as Getanothoa. There were other disquieting features, too. Again and again the report cited vague awestruck references to a true scroll. Something on which tremendous consequences seemed to hinge, and which was mentioned as being in the custody of a certain Nagab, whoever and whatever he might be. Likewise there was an insistent repetition of a name that sounded like Tog, Tiak, Yog, Zab or Yab, and which my more and more excited consciousness voluntarily linked with the name of the hapless heretic Tiag as given in the black book. This name was usually uttered in connection with such cryptical phrases as, quote, It is none other than he, or quote, He had looked upon its face, or quote, He knows all, though he can neither see nor feel, or quote, he has brought the memory down through the eons or quote, "the true scroll will release him" or quote, "nagab has the true scroll" or finally quote, "he can tell where to find it" something very queer was undoubtedly in the air and i did not wonder whether my occultist correspondence as well as the sensational sunday papers began to connect the new abnormal stirrings with the legends of Mew on the one hand, and with the frightful Mummy's recent exploitation on the other. The widespread articles in the first wave of press publicity, with their insistent linkage of the Mummy, Cylinder, and Scroll with the tale in the black book, and their crazy, fantastic speculations about the whole matter, might very well have roused the latent fanaticism in hundreds of those furtive groups of exotic devotees with which our complex world abounds. Nor did the papers cease adding fuel to the flames, for the stories and the cult stirrings were even wilder than the earlier series of yarns. As the summer drew on, attendants noticed a curious new second furor. More and more frequently there were persons of strange and exotic aspect, swarthy Asiatics, long-haired nondescripts, and bearded brown men who seem unused to European clothes, who would invariably inquire for the hall of mummies, and would subsequently be found staring at the hideous Pacific specimen in a veritable ecstasy of fascination. Some quiet, sinister undercurrent in this flood of eccentric foreigners seemed to impress all the guards, and I myself was far from undisturbed could not help thinking of the prevailing cult stirrings among just such exotics as these and with the connection of those stirrings with the myths all too close to the frightful mummy and its cylinder scroll at times i was half tempted to withdraw the mummy from exhibition especially when an attendant told me he had several times glimpsed strangers making odd obeisances before it and had overheard sing-song mutterings that sounded like chants or rituals addressed to it at hours when visiting throngs were somewhat thinned. One of the guards acquired a queer, nervous hallucination about the petrified horror in the long glass case, alleging he could see from day to day certain vague, subtle, and infinitely slight changes in the frantic flexion of the bony claws, and in the fear-crazed expression of the leathery face. "'he could not get rid of the loathsome idea "'that these horrible, bulging eyes "'were about to pop out suddenly. "'It was in early September "'when the curious crowds had lessened "'and the Hall of Mummies was somewhat vacant "'that the attempt was made to get at the mummy "'by cutting the glass of its case. "'The culprit, a swarthy Polynesian, "'was spied in time by a guard "'and was overpowered before any damage could occur.' Upon investigation, the fellow turned out to be an Hawaiian notorious for his activity in certain underground religious cults, and having considerable police record in connection with abnormal and inhuman rites and sacrifices. Some of the papers found in his room were highly puzzling and disturbing, including many sheets covered with hieroglyphs closely resembling those on the scroll at the museum and in the black book of von Jungs but regarding these things he could not be prevailed upon to speak. Scarcely a week after this incident another attempt was made to get at the mummy, this time by tampering with the lock on the case. This resulted in a second arrest. The offender, a Cingalese, had as long and unsavoury a record of loathsome cult activities as the Hawaiian had possessed, and displayed a kindred unwillingness to talk to the police. What made this case doubly and darkly interesting was that the guard had noticed this man several times before, and had heard him addressing to the mummy a peculiar chant containing the unmistakable repetition of the word Tiog. As a result of this affair, I doubled the guards in the hall of mummies and ordered them never to leave the now notorious specimen out of sight, even for a moment. As well may be imagined, the press made much of these two incidents, reviewing its talk of primal and fabulous Mew, and claiming boldly that the hideous mummy was none other than the daring heretic Tyog, petrified by something he had seen in the pre-human citadel he had invaded, and preserved intact through a hundred and seventy-five thousand years of our planet's turbulent history, that the strange devotees represented cults descended from Mew, and that they were worshipping the mummy, or perhaps even seeking to awaken it to life by spells and incantations, was emphasised and reiterated in the most sensational fashion. Writers exploited the insistence of the old legends that the brain of Gatana Thoa's petrified victims remained conscious and unaffected, a point which served as a basis for the wildest and most improbable speculations. The mention of a true scroll also received attention it being the prevailing popular theory that Tiag's stolen charm against Thoa was somewhere in existence, and that the cult members were trying to bring it into contact with Tiag himself for some purpose of their own. One result of this exploitation was that a third wave of gaping visitors began flooding the museum and staring at the hellish mummy, which served as a nucleus for a whole strange and disturbing affair. It was among this wave of spectators, many of whom made repeated visits, that talk of the mummy's vaguely changing aspect first began to be widespread. I suppose, despite the disturbing notion of the nervous guard some months before, that the museum's personnel were too well used to the constant sight of odd shapes to pay close attention to details. In any case, it was the excited whispers of visitors, which at length aroused the guards to subtle mutation which was apparently in progress. Almost simultaneously the press got hold of it, with blatant results which can well be imagined. Naturally I gave the matter my most careful observation, and by the middle of October decided that a definite disintegration of the mummy was under way, through some chemical or physical influence in the air, The half-stone, half-leather fibres seemed to be gradually relaxing, causing distinct variations in the angles of the limbs, and in certain details of the fear-twisted facial expression. After a half-century of perfect preservation, this was a highly disconcerting development, and I had the museum's taxidermist, Dr. Moore, go carefully over the gruesome object several times. He reported to me a general relaxation and softening and gave the thing two or three astringent sprayings, but he did not dare to attempt anything drastic, lest there be a sudden crumbling and accelerated decay. The effect of all this upon the gaping crowds was curious. Heretofore, each new sensation sprung by the press had brought fresh waves of staring and whispering visitors. But now, though the papers blathered endlessly about the mummy's changes, The public seemed to have acquired a definite sense of fear which outranked even its morbid curiosity. People seemed to feel that a sinister aura hovered over the museum, and from a high peak the attendance fell to a level distinctly below normal. This lessened attendance gave added prominence to the stream of the freakish foreigners who continued to infest the place, and whose numbers seemed in no way diminished. On November 18th, the Peruvian of Indian blood suffered a strange hysterical or epileptic seizure in front of the mummy. Afterward, shrieking from his hospital cot, Chog tried to open his eyes and stare at me. I was by this time on the point of removing the object from exhibition, but permitted myself to be overruled at a meeting of our very conservative directors. However, I could see that the museum was beginning to acquire— an unholy reputation in its austere and quiet neighbourhood. After this incident I gave instructions that no one would be allowed to pause before the monstrous Pacific relic for more than a few minutes at a time. It was on November 24th, after the museum's five o'clock closing, one of the guards noticed a minute opening of the mummy's eyes. The phenomenon was very slight, nothing but a thin crescent of cornea being visible in either eye but it was, none the less, of the highest interest. Dr. Moore, having been summoned hastily, was about to study the exposed bits of eyeball with a magnifier when his handling of the mummy caused the leathery lids to fall tightly shut again. All gentle efforts to open them failed, and the taxidermist did not dare to apply drastic measures. When he notified me of all this by telephone, I felt a sense of mounting dread, Hard to reconcile with the apparently simple event. For a moment I could share the popular impression that some evil amorphous blight from unplumbed deeps of time and space hung murkily and menacingly over the museum. Two nights later, a sullen Filipino was trying to secrete himself in the museum at closing time. Arrested and taken to the station, he refused to even give his name and was detained as a suspicious person. Meanwhile the strict surveillance of the mummy seemed to discourage the odd hordes of foreigners from haunting it. At least the number of exotic visitors distinctly fell off after the enforcement of the Mubalong Order. It was during the early morning hours of Thursday, december first, that a terrible climax developed. At about one o'clock, horrible screams of mortal fright and agony were heard issuing from the museum, and a series of frantic telephone calls from neighbors brought to the scene quickly and simultaneously a squad of police and several museum officials, including myself. Some of the policemen surrounded the building while others, with the officials, cautiously entered. In the main corridor we found the night watchman strangled to death, a bit of East Indian hemp still knotted around his neck, and we realized that despite all the precautions some darkly evil intruder or intruders had gained access to the place. Now, however, a tomb-like silence enveloped everything, and we almost feared to advance upstairs to the fateful wing where we knew the core of the trouble had to lurk. We felt a bit more steadied after flooding the building with light from the central switches in the corridor, and finally we crept reluctantly up the curving staircase and through a lofty archway to the Hall of Mummies. CHAPTER FIVE It is from this point forward that reports of the hideous case have been censored, for we have all agreed that no good can be accomplished by a public knowledge of those terrestrial conditions implied by the further developments. I have said we flooded the whole building with light before our ascent. Now, beneath the beams that beat down on the glistening cases and their gruesome contents, we saw outspread a mute horror whose baffling details testified to happenings utterly beyond our comprehension. There were two intruders, who we afterwards agreed must have hidden in the building before closing time. But they would never be executed for the watchman's murder. They had already paid the penalty. One was a Burmese, and the other a Fiji Islander, both known to the police for their share in frightful and repulsive cult activities. They were dead and the more we examined them, the more utterly monstrous and unnameable we felt their manner of death to be. On both their faces was a more wholly frantic and inhuman look of fright than even the oldest policeman had ever seen before. Yet in the state of the two bodies there were vast and significant differences. The Burmese lay and collapsed close to the nameless mummy's case, from which a square of glass had been neatly cut. In his right hand was a scroll of bluish membrane which I at once saw was covered with grayish hieroglyphs, almost a duplicate of the scroll in the strange cylinder in the library downstairs, though later study brought out subtle differences. There was no mark of violence on the body, and in view of the desperate, agonized expression on the twisted face, we could only conclude the man died of sheer fright. It was the closely adjacent Fijian, though, "'that gave us the profoundest shock. "'One of the policemen was the first to feel him, "'and the cry of fright he emitted added another shock "'to that neighborhood's night of terror. "'We ought to have known from the lethal greyness "'of the once black, fear-twisted face "'and of the bony hands, "'one of which still clutched an electric torch, "'that something was hideously wrong. "'Yet every one of us was unprepared "'for what that officer's hesitant touch disclosed.' Even now I can think of it only with a paroxysm of dread and repulsion. To be brief, the hapless invader, who less than an hour before had been a sturdy living Melanesian bent on unknown evil, was now a rigid ash-gray figure of stony, leathery petrification, in every respect identical with the crouching, eon-old blasphemy in the violated glass case. Yet that was not the worst of it. Crowning all other horrors, and indeed seizing our shocked attention before we turned to the bodies on the floor, was the state of the frightful mummy. No longer could its changes be called vague and subtle, for now it had made radical shifts in posture. It had sagged and slumped with a curious loss of rigidity. Its bony claws had sunk until they no longer even partly covered its leathery, fear-crazed face. then God help us! Its hellish, bulging eyes had popped wide open, and seemed to be staring directly at the two intruders, who had died of fright, or worse. That ghastly, dead-fish stare was hideously mesmerizing, and it haunted us all the time we were examining the bodies of the invaders. Its effects on our nerves was damnably queer, for we somehow felt a curious rigidity creeping over us and hampering our simplest actions, a rigidity which later vanished very oddly when we passed the hieroglyph scroll around for inspection. Every now and then I felt my gaze drawn irresistibly toward those horrible bulging eyes in the case— and when I returned to study them after viewing the bodies, I thought I detected something very singular about the glassy surface of the dark and marvellously well-preserved pupils. The more I looked, the more fascinated I became, and at last I went down to the office, despite strange stiffness in my limbs, and brought up a strong multiple magnifying glass. With this I commenced a very close and careful survey of the fishy pupils while the others crowded expectantly around me i had always been rather sceptical of the theory that scenes and objects become photographed on the retina of the eye in cases of death or coma yet no sooner did i look through the lens than i realized the presence of some sort of image other than the room's reflection and the glassy bulging optics of this nameless spawn of eons Certainly, there was a dimly outlined scene on the age-old retinal surface, and I could not doubt that it formed the last thing on which those eyes had looked on in life, countless millennia ago. It seemed to be steadily fading, and I fumbled with the magnifier in order to shift another lens into place. Yet it must have been accurate and clear-cut, even if infinitesimally small, when in response to some evil spell or act connected with their visit, it had confronted those intruders who were frightened to death. With the extra lens I could make out many details formerly invisible, and the odd group around me hung on the flood of words with which I tried to tell what I saw. For here, in the year 1932, a man in the city of Boston was looking on something which belonged to an unknown and utterly alien world, a world that vanished from existence and normal memory eons ago. There was a vast room a chamber of cyclopean masonry, and I seemed to be viewing it from one of those corners. On the walls were carvings so hideous that even in this imperfect image their stark blasphemy and bestiality sickened me. I could not believe that the carvers of these things were human, or that they had ever seen human beings when they shaped the frightful outlines that leered at the beholder. In the centre of the chamber was a colossal trapdoor of stone, "'pushed up to admit the emergence of some object from below. "'The object should have been clearly visible. "'Indeed must have been when the eyes first opened "'before the fear-stricken intruders, "'though under my lenses it was merely a monstrous blur. "'As it happened, I was studying the right eye only, "'when I brought the extra magnification into play. "'A moment later I wished fervently that my search had ended there.' As it was, however, the zeal of discovery and revelation was upon me, and I shifted my powerful lenses to the mummy's left eye, in the hope of finding the image less faded on that retina. My hands, trembling with excitement and unnaturally stiff from some obscure influence, were slow in bringing the magnifier into focus, but a moment later I realised that the image was less faded than in the other eye. I saw in a morbid flash of half distinctness The insufferable thing which was welling up through the prodigious trap door and that cyclopean, immemorially archaic crypt of a lost world, and I fell fainting with an inarticulate shriek of which I am not even ashamed. By the time I revived, there was no distinct image of anything in either eye of the monstrous mummy. Sergeant Keefe of the police looked with my glass, for I could not bring myself to face that abnormal entity again, and I thanked all the powers of the cosmos I had not looked earlier than I did. It took all my resolution and a great deal of solicitation to make me relate what I had glimpsed in the hideous moment of revelation. Indeed, I could not speak till we had adjourned to the office below, out of sight of that demoniac thing which could not be for I had begun to harbour the most terrible and fantastic notions about the mummy and its glassy bulging eyes, that it had a kind of hellish consciousness, seeing all that occurred before it, and trying vainly to communicate some frightful message from the gulfs of time. That meant madness, but at least I thought I might be better off if I told what I had seen. After all, it was not a long thing to tell. Oozing and searching up out of that yawning trap-door in the Cyclopean crypt, I glimpsed such an unbelievable behemoth and monster I could not doubt the power of its original to kill with its mere sight. Even now I cannot begin to suggest it with any words at my command. It might be called gigantic, tentacled, proboscidian, octopus-eyed, semi-amorphous, plastic, "'partly squamous, partly rugose. "'Oh, but nothing I could say "'could even adumbrate the loathsome, unholy, non-human, "'extragalactic horror and hatefulness, "'and unutterable evil of that forbidden spawn "'of black chaos and illimitable night. As I write these words, the associated mental image "'causes me to lean back, faint and nauseated.' As I told of the sight to the men around me in the office, I had to fight to preserve the consciousness I had regained. Nor were my hearers much less moved. Not a man spoke above a whisper for a full quarter hour, and there were odd, half furtive references to the frightful lore of the Black Book, to the recent newspaper tales of cult stirrings, and to the sinister events in the museum. Katanothoa, even its smallest imperfect image could petrify. Tiag, the false scroll. He never came back. The true scroll, which could fully or partly undo the petrification. Did it survive? The hellish cults. The phrases overheard. It's none other than he. He had looked upon his face. He knows all, though he can neither see nor feel. He had brought the memory down through the eons. The true scroll will release him. "'Nagab has the true scroll. He can tell where to find it. "'Only the healing greyness of the dawn brought us back to sanity, "'a sanity which made of that glimpse of mine a closed topic, "'something not to be explained or thought of again. "'We gave out only a partial reports to the press, "'and later on cooperated with the papers in making other suppressions.' For example, when the autopsy showed the brain and several other internal organs of the petrified Fijian to be fresh and unpetrified, though hermetically sealed in the petrification of the exterior flesh, an anomaly about which the physicians are still guardedly and bewilderedly debating, we did not wish a furor to be started. We knew too well what the yellow journals, remembering what was said of the intact brain and still conscious state of Katana stony-leathery victims, would make of this detail. As matters stood, they pointed out that the man who held the hieroglyph scroll, and who had evidently thrust it at the mummy through the open case, was not petrified, while the man who had not held it was. When they demanded that we make certain experiments, applying the scroll both to the stony-leathery body of the Fijian, and to the mummy itself, we indignantly refused to abet such superstitious notions of course the mummy was withdrawn from public view and transferred to the museum laboratory awaiting a really scientific examination before some suitable medical authority remembering the past events we kept it under strict guard but even so an attempt was made to enter the museum at 2:25 a.m. on december 5th prompt working of the burglar alarm frustrated the design though, unfortunately, the criminal or criminals escaped. That no hint of anything further ever reached the public, I am profoundly thankful. I wish devoutly that there were nothing more to tell. There will, of course, be leaks, and if anything happens to me, I do not know what my executors will do with this manuscript. But at least the case will not be painfully fresh in the multitude's memory when the revelation comes. Besides, no one will believe the facts when they're finally told. That's the curious thing about the multitude. When their yellow press makes hints, they are ready to swallow anything. But when a stupendous and abnormal revelation is actually made, they laugh at aside as a lie. For the sake of general sanity, it is probably better so. I've said that a scientific examination of the frightful mummy was planned. This took place on December 8th, exactly a week after the hideous culmination of events, and was conducted by the eminent Dr. Manot, in conjunction with Wentworth Moore, taxidermist for the museum. Dr. Manot had witnessed the autopsy of the oddly petrified Fijian the week before. There was also present Messrs. Lawrence Cabot and Dudley Saltonstall, of the museum trustees, Doctors Mason, Wells and Cover, of the museum staff, two representatives of the press, and myself. During the week the condition of the hideous specimen had not visibly changed, though some relaxation of its fibres caused the position of the glassy opened eyes to shift slightly from time to time. All of the staff dreaded to look at the thing, for its suggestion of quiet, conscious watching had become intolerable and it was only with an effort I could bring myself to attend the examination. Dr. Manot arrived shortly after 1 p.m., and within a few minutes began his survey of the mummy. Considerable disintegration took place under his hands, and in view of this, and of what we told him concerning the gradual relaxation of the specimen since the 1st of October, he decided that a thorough dissection ought to be made before the substance was further impaired. The proper instruments being present in the laboratory equipment, he began at once, exclaiming aloud at the odd fibrous nature of the grey, mummified substance. But his exclamation was still louder when he made the first deep incision, for out of that cut there slowly trickled a thick crimson stream whose nature, despite the infinite ages dividing the hellish mummy's lifetime from the present, was utterly unmistakable. A few more death strokes revealed various organs and astonishing degrees of non-petrified preservation, all indeed being intact except where injuries of the petrified exterior had brought about malformation or destruction. The resemblance of this condition to that found of the fright-killed Fijian islander was so strong that the eminent physician gasped in bewilderment. The perfection of those ghastly, bulging eyes was uncanny, and their exact state with respect to petrification was very difficult to determine. At 3.30 p.m. the brain case was opened, and ten minutes later our stunned group took an oath of secrecy which only such guarded documents as this manuscript will ever modify even the two reporters were glad to confirm the silence for the opening had revealed a pulsing living brain the end we hope you enjoyed
0: this presentation of hp lovecraft's out of the eons this is your narrator jim campanella the theme music was composed by J.R. Bowd of Chestnut Mills Music. It can be found on SoundDogs.com and is called Echoes of Atlantis. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio web As usual check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you.